Welcome to the Infinite Improvisation Podcast, Adventures in Music and Creativity. I'm Seattle-based saxophonist Steve Tressler and joined by Lauren Best in Ontario. Great to be here again. Yeah, so this is a continuation of our Who pilot episode, a little bit about about who we are and our stories and why this work is important. Um, yeah, this needed a this needed a part two because hmm. we just just scratched the surface last time. So, yeah, so I wanted to take it back yeah. <laughs> long, long ago, <laughs> um, and and ask you about some of the kind of we talked about that why the work is important, sort of some of the early sparks or kind of what helped you catch a fire, so to speak, in your own practice. Yeah, so. I started playing music. I was actually in public school band. You know, played played clarinet and band. I wouldn't let us start on saxophone, so had to made you stick with clarinet for a couple of years. But I mean, growing up younger, like my my dad was a guitar player and played in a in a cover band, played some guitar and bass, and sometimes we noodled around with some instruments. But I never had any lessons growing up, so my musical journey really started once I was in instrumental music in in fifth grade band, playing the playing the clarinet and. I remember in my first band concert leading up to it, I really liked the song that we were playing in fifth grade band, but then I was at home like practicing my part. It was just really not satisfying to be playing second clarinet by myself, but I really liked playing the whole song. So I was just, just remembering this the the other day and, you know, but I wanted to be able to play this song on my own. And like one day after class, one of the trumpet players left their music on the floor and it had the melody of the song. And I like was, so I like snatched it up. And then I was, I had this like little cassette Fisher price cassette recorder and I recorded myself and playing the clarinet part. And then I was like live, like playing for my family. Look, I can play the song now doing a little overdub with myself and just seemed like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. But that, that may have been a sign, you know, I was into doing this and, and recording and, and all that, but sticking with clarinet and until, well, let's see what, one of the ear- earliest sparks was, it was my second year playing and I was in a regional honor band type situation. So kids from a bunch of, bunch of schools came together that were okay, auditioned to, to be in it. Some people are serious about playing and were playing some trickier music and the band was bigger and all that. But at the concert, there was this there was a another sixth grader who was a tenor saxophone player, and I think we were playing who's the theme song to Peter Gunn in our ba- band repertoire. And this kid played a solo on it on saxophone. He was taking lessons and he improvised. So he played this, like blues solo on on top of this, and I was just mesmerized. I was like, "That is so cool. Sam mm-hmm. is so cool. Like I I want to do that." Um, and that just like that planted the seed. And it was another maybe like another year later when my band director. Uh, Bruce Laban, who just who just retired, we're, st- we're still in we're still in touch and, and friends and played gigs together. But he's one that got a saxophone in my hands, and I was yeah to get ready get ready for seventh grade jazz band. And I actually and then I auditioned on clarinet, but I just was not taking anything seriously, and I didn't make I got cut from my middle school jazz band, so I wasn't I didn't make it. And he was enough of a softy that was like, oh please, can I? And I'll take lessons or whatever. And then he inevitably broke down and let me join. And if I took lessons over the summer, which I did, and I wasn't that great of a, a student, but Sam, my sixth grade hero, was actually in band with me in eighth grade, and we were stand partners. So I sat next to him, and he was his his dad was really into jazz and got him listening 
to a lot of things. So I sat next to him. I was in his shadow a lot of the time, which was fine because he was really experienced and just learning a lot and getting into it. And I went over to his house and he was playing John Coltrane for me. And he's like, have you ever listened to free jazz? I'm like, what's that? You know, so he's playing like Ornette Coleman's double quartet. And I was like, whoa, what is this? I've never heard anything like, you know, it's like the counterculture of, oh, this isn't what we're doing in, in, in jazz band. And then later on, think yeah once i was in high school i ended up connecting with sam's teacher that he had studied with for years and that's when things really took off i was taking it more seriously myself and and was connected with a really good teacher who was a uh, bruce wilson he was a woodwind doubler so he played a lot of the the, sh- the musical theater pit orchestra shows and weddings and corporate events and jazz gigs he was a very versatile woodwind player and when i connected with him it was a, he was a great teacher and the time that i was ready to ready to take it seriously Nice. I I yeah. love so many aspects of that story. Oh. <laughs> One cuz I just I I like as someone who I have my own kids, I work with mm-hmm. kids. I know what the, some of those moments look like and feel like to me mm-hmm. observing them in the moment. So I love imagining little Steve. Oh. <laughs> um, you oh, know, I got a picture. Maybe I can include it with my like hair everywhere and my cheeks puffed out blowing into this clarinet. So Yeah. I found, uh, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I just, I posted recently a picture of, for my own childhood on Instagram, yeah. and my best friend is singing beside me, and I have my ears covered, like my hands over my ears, yeah. and I'm just looking so unimpressed at <laughs> um, But what I, what, one of the things, well, a few things, like, like, struck me about that, um, about that story, but one is, like, just at the very beginning, mm-hmm. that you had this feeling of playing with the band and like you knew you liked that feeling and then trying mm. to recreate that on your own. And this is something I talk to students a lot about, right? That that feeling of, it's uh, something we kind of touched upon of being like enchanted by music. I think that was exactly. one of your favorite words, the, the musical enchantment yeah. um, feeling or another way of thinking of that is like flow states, right? Yeah. But that, you know, we all know what it's like to kind of get lost in a musical moment. For some people, mm-hmm. they might have only experienced that like listening or dancing. But for mm-hmm. those of us who've played with others, like we know that feeling. Mm-hmm. But then to practice, <laughs> we're often doing it alone and we're not even close to that feeling. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to kind of figure out how to how to square those things and um I love that 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 is so clear to you in your memory, even yeah. at that very early uh, stage of stage of your journey. Yeah. Yeah, and so and and those of us that are you know trained to be ensemble players, like we get this you know the the high feeling of performance, and it's it's we're part of the group, and we feel like we're con- I mean right off the bat we're connected to this community and contributing to something bigger. But then when we're on our own practicing in isolation, it's like preparing for it, it's disconnected from the actual act of creating music whereas a lot of folks that maybe are playing guitar or piano they're totally in isolation a lot of the mm-hmm. time but you can have more of a complete musical experience a lot of your piano pieces you know it is you can and, and if you want that feeling of a complete musical piece uh you're able to access that but you oftentimes are more yeah isolated and don't have that community don't have the community experience of of belonging uh, in your training. And yeah, during the pandemic, there are so many musicians that were used to having that complete musical experience in a group with other people. And now we're isolated and the practicing being disconnected from the performance or the actual act of creation. It was really, yeah, a lot of people were just in a major slump, not, not being able 
not being able to do that. And I was really encouraging, I mean, myself and all my students too, to work on some unaccompanied pieces where, you know, playing mm. your instrument, this is the complete piece of music or starting to experiment with technology and di digital audio workstations and, you know, produce pieces of music that you don't have to wait around for the pandemic to end, to be able to, you know, play, play with the, play with the mm. band again. So. Yeah. And interestingly, when I teach piano or mm. when I play piano, part of it is about choosing when we play with two hands as two voices mm. or maybe with two hands but kind of functionally as one voice right mm -hmm. versus when we separate them and we we uh, work on work on our hands separately or imagining voices separately and i i often talk to students about the idea of you know what if one of your hands was a saxophone player or was a flute player or was a you know some other instrument, right? Whatever they, or, or a voice, right? And to imagine instead of it being piano where you have t 10 fingers, mm -hmm. you know, to really imagine one note at a time uh, because it can feel wonderful to play lots of notes and mm -hmm. to explore the full range of the piano and to play with both our hands and to like immerse ourselves in that complexity. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting, like the different um, experiences that can come to and from that. Also, as someone who's spent a lot of time accompanying myself singing, mm -hmm. and that adds a adds a whole other aspect of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and the other thing I loved about your story was the was getting refused into band. Yeah. <laughs> because I also, as a piano player, I didn't have like a wind instrument, uh, and I wanted to join the orchestra, but I didn't have the skills uh, mm -hmm. in in those kinds of instruments. So. Uh, and I was playing piano and jazz band, but I, I was I was thinking, wow, this is great. I'm used to practicing piano alone and mm -hmm. singing choirs. Like I can be in this kind of ensemble, but I didn't get refused. Mm. <laughs> but the the conductor very nicely like put me on whatever extra percussion instruments there were in the arrangement. So I was like yeah. playing the juice jug for one song. It was a <laughs> juice jug filled with like marbles and water, yeah. and it was like a riverboat song, and that was my role, and I played mallets for something else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't really fully integrated on an instrument, even though I wasn't uh, kicked mm -hmm. out <laughs> at that yeah. point. Yeah, so I have that story in my back pocket too. You know, if I have a student who's just really upset that they didn't make the top band instead of something, else, you know, it's like, well, you know, this this stuff happens to all of us in our in our journey. But yeah, in this class, I mean, there are certain music programs now that are hyper competitive. So like mm -hmm. you get cut and you're just out. So th this one, it ended up being a, a great program, but it wasn't super competitive. It wasn't pushing these eighth graders to sound, you know, sound better than high school students. So there was enough, you know, yeah, Bruce Levin was very much about, you know, we're exploring our instruments and having a good time and bringing the community together. And there's a lot of people from that band that went on to be great musicians, mm. but I really appreciate that flexibility where if I was showing up with that same attitude or level of skills and some of these high level programs that are around me now, like they're not making the band. Yeah. Sorry. We got a whole army of saxophone players and, you know, even mm. in the band I was in, there was extra players. They didn't need me in, in the group, but mm. I, I wouldn't have had that you know, space to grow and really find the spark to really get into it because I just wouldn't have been competitive and been cut and who, well, who knows what would happen. And I, I think you and I both have a have a passion for for taking music outside of the competitive sphere mm -hmm. as much as there. I mean, web, the utility of competition is another yeah. episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, especially nowadays, right, where, where there are, you know, you can go on YouTube and see a million videos of very young children, well, yeah, maybe not a million, many videos of very young children excelling, right? But that 
uh, sometimes we really build up like the child star, the prodigy, like people mm-hmm. who have a, who who sound beyond their years or beyond the mm-hmm. amount they've they've done something, but that it's not always a predictor of future success or of um, like future positioning, mm-hmm. uh, and that for myself, like that definitely wasn't my. I mean, in some ways, of course, I. I had certain gifts or talents or whatever, but there were many ways where it felt like I was struggling and like I was like behind the mm-hmm. uh, sort of behind the prime to, to learn yeah. and and just starting by talking a little later. And I started playing piano when I was nine and I felt like it was too late. Mm. Like, <laughs> you know, I knew other kids who'd been studying yeah. since they were younger and it felt like they were further along and it felt like I would never catch up, so to speak. Totally. And it's it's a very weird thing to think like as a child... I felt like my time had passed yeah. already, you know? Yeah, that's, um, that's, yeah, that's so wild. I saw this little meme infographic, you know, that the time, you know, it's like your lifespan and here's when you, you know, here's your born and here's, here's your death. And then here's your point, you know, where you think it's too late, mm. you know, but the point where it's actually too late is like after you're dead, but yeah, <laughs> all yeah. that time in the, in the middle that there's, there's so much. And, you know, there's plenty of people that, that, that are, prodigies are super gifted kids that either burn out or suddenly you know mm-hmm. they're not a cute little kid anymore then they're a teenager you're a middle-aged person and the novelty of being young and doing it and sometimes a lot of the great feedback they got is that the from people you know glowing about how great they are for their age and then when that mm-hmm. when that whole system goes or that that whole environment changes mm-hmm. you know what's going to keep keep them sticking with it for for decades mm-hmm. and some do and and some don't, but then the yeah the late, late bloomers, you know, plenty of, or it's not even late. I I, I don't know, but people that start not not super young. Um, yeah, different like many different journeys to yeah. end up in the same room having a great time playing music together. Mm-hmm. But uh, I often wonder when I'm like telling children or or you know students or even adults, um, you know, telling them about possible sources of inspiration right Mm -hmm. and you know like do i send like an example video that's really cool to see but is a very young child playing in a way that seems beyond their years Mm -hmm. and you know whether it can become a sam moment that Mm -hmm. results in a lot of inspiration that becomes really catalyzing that kind of makes us think twice that you that's just inspiring Mm -hmm. Or whether there's like a subtle form of pressure or a form mm-hmm. of like putting on a pedestal, a very specific kind of performance because we mm-hmm. don't see the process, right? Yeah. And, you know, there could be extraordinarily valuable process and learning happening that never results in that that kind mm. of outcome that sounds great on a video. So I, I often think about these things. Yeah, absolutely. And then later on, like when I was in high school, that's when I really got into it and I was practicing a lot. I was just geek. Didn't even feel like I was disciplined and practicing a lot. I just always had my horn in my mouth and I was playing a lot. And then I, mm. you know, that then I became a very strong player for my age and was like winning things. And then people like, oh, you are so talented. You have such a gift. And I was like, well, no, it didn't feel like a gift. Like I was just, I really liked playing and I did it a lot. And mm. I'm like excelling at it. So it, yeah, it never it never really felt like that I had, yeah, that I was just a natural. Other than mm, yeah. I was drawn to being interested in it. It's just like that with anything. Good old, my uh, I don't know my good old uh, Bob Ross. I was Bob Ross for a uh, Halloween a couple of years back. But you know, he said the ta- <laughs> the talent is pursued interest. Yeah, exactly. And, um, that actually brings me back to the the Sam story. Where that has stuck out. I was reading. Uh, a book by Dan Coyle. It's called The Talent Code. You know, sort of the research mm-hmm. on how we develop talent, which, 
you know, a lot of the research says, you know, it's not, it's, it's not just a talent gene where you're born, you come out of the womb and you're talented and some are talented and some aren't that there's like looking at ways that certain people prepare or li- live their lives in a way to, to grow talent. And s- some of it is no, you know, no mystery, like a de- deliberate practice. So lots of skill development and doing it in a thoughtful goal oriented way. No surprise there. And then there's like th- three of these pillars or whatever he calls them. And second is master coaching. So you're getting instruction mm. or teach from, from someone who's a, who's a expert teacher. But the third is ignition, you know, just like that mm. burst of motivation. And that can, that, that the practice can happen a little baby steps over time, but the ignition can just take off. Mm. And one of the most powerful sources of that can be a model of someone you know, in your community, someone that's like you from your same town that's doing something like, wow, you know, if Sam can do it, that's something I can do too. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, I was listening to some great jazz recordings. I'd listen to Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. I'm like, okay, yeah, wow, they're amazing. But then you see some other kid doing it and it's like, oh, wow, they're doing it. That's something, that's something I can do. And it's something we can, we see professionally too. It's like, oh, look at what mm-hmm. this person is doing. That's cool. Maybe that's something that I could do as well. So that's, that really stuck out as I was reading that book. I'm like, oh, that's really what happened to me in some other situations where I saw someone doing it. I'm like, wow, mm. that is so cool. That person is so cool. Like, I just want to, I want to do that. And it's and knowing it's possible makes makes all the difference rather than feeling yeah. like, oh, am I not gifted enough to do this thing? It's like, well, if they're, you know, well, the good, the good good kind of social pressure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Seeing that model and seeing that there's so much we can learn from models that can't be explained, right? Mm-hmm. Where we're it's we're we're noticing all kinds of details that we aren't necessarily even noticing mm-hmm. consciously right and not only about the you know the technique or the aesthetic or the whatever we're noticing about that mm-hmm. but also you know things about like the energy and the um per, like you know the effort or the personality or the story and i'm thinking about the like the kind of bravery or courage aspect of it mm-hmm. and that in the uh like, I don't know if it's, that's talked about in the talent code or not, but it, I think of that when you're talking about, oh, people say, oh, you're talented. And it's like, well, no, I, it's maybe, <laughs> but yeah. I practice, like I'm spending time doing mm-hmm. it. But I think all, part of it too is like, like I was going to say spending time facing the darkness. But what mm-hmm. I mean about that is like, there's rough spots, you know, and, and, and we've talked about performance and nerves mm-hmm. and how like there are feelings that we can mistake for danger <laughs> and that we can mistake for mm. being a sign that something's wrong because it, it feels weird mm. or it feels bad. And, you know, kind of integrating that and being like, oh, I noticed that. And then I work with it because I have these other these other aspects of of like of the coaching and of, of, of the inspiration, like, you mm. know, devel- developing me. So it's worth being brave and it's worth mm. having courage through some of those those rougher aspects through being discouraged or, you know, not, not making the cut for something or Mm. uh, just all those micro moments of it, not, not going the way you want, (laughs) but being like, I'm going to keep going anyways. Yeah. And why, like, when is the, the benefits really kind of uh, outweigh the, the scary feelings or the risk, or, you know, we're talking about, you know, risk or doing something that makes us feel uncomfortable on purpose a lot of it, like, why, why would we want to do that? And actually I have that as like a possible topic too. Like at what, at what point do we know mm-hmm. that the benefits are going to outweigh that it, it's so important to us that we will make ourselves feel uncomfortable or take risks on purpose when a lot of the times those are things that we will naturally avoid. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of other risks or scary things that we 
it's a good idea to avoid. So mm-hmm. when when is it worth it to take those take those emotional you know, emotional labor rather than physical threats for mo- most of our, our well depends what your performance piece is, but yeah, it's that that kind of emotional labor when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when 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 do we when and why do we do it? But although social exclusion feels like physical injury, so yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's wired yeah. into the same same alarm system. Yeah. That's a whole nother, yeah, the public speaking or playing a solo as soon as you feel like you're going to be kicked out of the group, you know, are yeah, that's a whole nother, whole other talk. But it's yeah, uh, yeah but you I, feel like you're you know it's oh our ancestors if you got booted out of your community you get you'd starve to death or get eaten by a predator so it's still so hardwired those some of those feelings that when it we know it's not physically dangerous but mm-hmm. our whole pr- primitive yeah the limbic system just goes yeah yeah and i think as facilitators like this becomes so central right because it's it's like what containers or or contexts do we set up so that people can explore improvisation and can explore creativity and can get those benefits we're talking about mm-hmm. and kind of can kind of enter into our belief. Because when we see people in those situations, sometimes what they anticipate or expect of themselves is a certain thing and what we imagine they can do and what we have conviction that like we like we believe that they can do is so much beyond that, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and we imagine and believe tons of possibilities that perhaps in that moment the the you know people who are just starting um to experiment with this kind of thing might not have thought they were going to be doing that today and might not have thought that would be possible mm. yeah and that's that's one one area where we come together with our experiences which is yeah facilitating community experiences around creativity or improvisation and music and something yeah i've got a bazillion questions for you about but as i as i've been you know, teacher, educator in the space that there's so much fear and anxiety with a lot of people. Some have had traumatic experiences uh, around this in, in the past that that's so much of this kind of teaching isn't about, you know, the skills or the material or the tips or the tricks. It's building the right environment. And I've been coming with just different ways of um, sort of si- sidestepping the, the fear response. And so much of that mm-hmm. is if we're doing something as a group and it feels like that doing the creative thing makes you feel like you belong and you're part of something, it just eases all those, uh, the fight, flight, freeze response. Just like, you know, public speaking is, uh, did I already say the Seinfeld joke on a previous? <laughs> Give it to <laughs> so us tell again. Me, maybe this is the second time. Maybe you weren't listening to the other episode, or I didn't say it at all. But you know, he says that there, there was this, there was you know there's a study that said that public speaking is the number one is the number one fear among adults, and number two is death. So which means right. if you have to be at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. <laughs> uh, right. So there's uh, so much that, that again, yeah, feeling like you're. You're part of something. Oh, I, where, I was, where I was going with that is it something like public speaking is scary, but having a conversation with your friends it just flows. It's not scary. Talking isn't scary. It's being put on the spot and having everyone looking at you mm-hmm. and judging you and potentially like throwing you out so a saber toothed tiger can get you. Like that's the scary part. So we can frame these experiences yeah. in ways where you don't have to face the fears and fight it. You just like sidestep it by changing the culture and changing the experience. I mean, that's my yeah one of my big takeaways from doing the, doing this work, making those those kind of situations. Yeah, and I think when you do this kind of work, you see what's possible. So yeah. I've I've been thinking about you know what what were some kind of formative moments mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, and uh, 
when I was 15, over the summer, I took part in a theater workshop. It was like, you yeah. know, an intensive where we were developing a new work, which already was pretty cool, right? I'd been Absolutely. like involved in um, more, more coming from like a musical theater background. Um, so, and, and doing some, some drama games and things like that, but not play creation and not doing the uh, activities that were like going as deep with improv as I ended up um, participating in. And that the theater company is called Sheater. They still exist. And the play ended up being called Far From the Heart. So uh, it was a play about uh, dating violence and about sexual assault, which is kind of a lot to be like creating a new work about as a yeah. teenager, but we, we did it. And wow. uh and so the reason this was like doable is that it's a form of theater called theater of the oppressed and there's different branches of theater uh theater of the oppressed and it's theater for social change and that's something that theater specializes in so they'd done other projects that had to do with um with meaningful and impactful subject subject matter so the way form theater works is that a problem play is presented uh so a relatively short play that has has all these issues, <laughs> like things don't end well. And then it's shown again and the action is stopped at certain points and the audience is invited to get up and replace a character and intervene Whoa. and improv out an alternate solution to some of the problems that come up in the play. So here I was <laughs> having been part of this group that created uh, create this play and I like I kind of understood what I was getting into but of course like you don't really know what it's all about until you're doing it um and we presented this play we created including with interventions at several local high schools so not only had kind of my perception of what theater is how we create theater mm -hmm. how I create theater like who I am in that context not only was that stretched I then saw all of these people who were not planning on getting up on stage that day, getting up on stage and improving these alternate solutions uh, to things that, especially at that time, no one really wants to even like talk about. Um, you know, like teenagers aren't typically talking about dating with their teachers and stuff. And yet we're in the school and they're like, you know, um, uh, like trying to find solutions on stage to these issues. Uh, so that was a really, like just kind of life-changing project and I end up doing other being involved in other things with theater uh after that that both both with Far From The Heart um and also with other projects where I was really introduced to just all kinds of generative improv that is that was then like used and incorporated in professional productions and that was like it just it, it really showed me the power of improv to be taken to um, a really impactful and professional level as well as having that personal transformation. So it kind of modeled for me the social change aspects of creative work really early and put me really in the middle of that. Uh, and right from the beginning, there were some cool innovative things about that project. So the local TV station, Rogers TV, filmed one of those performances and they took like phone in interventions <laughs> if people wanted Whoa. to do so. And then later the play was turned into, well, it was toured with professional actors. It's been translated into French and uh, like been mounted several times that way, but it's also been turned into an interactive film, which still lives online. I ended up uh, both being part of the production process and I did a little bit of acting in that film too, which was a like really amazing experience Whoa. as a young person. Um, 
So it's a, like right from the beginning, there's this kind of intersection of different art forms, of technology, of social change. And that was like, boo, really, really. It, it's like, it's exciting, but it also from the beginning, like I was thinking about how creativity applied to this really big stuff and kind of like the responsibility of being a creative person because you know from the beginning the kind of ripples that and impact that that can have wow (laughs) holy so holy cow that's that's incredible so is that tell me a little bit that organization that was it was a it was a community organization yeah so how how did you get connected with that when you were in high school like how, how did that how did that happen yeah, that's not, not a typical. Ex- I like. I, I'm imagining that is not something that most of our youth have access to. Like being part of a production like that. Like, yeah, how does that? How does that happen? That's incredible. Yes, yeah, so it was a nonprofit uh, theater, and you know, mm. arts education, community arts uh, organization. And I've I've since been involved in a whole bunch of different projects that she mm. has done. So it really was a kind of like it's led to so many things. Mm-hmm. And at that time. I mean, it was community arts, like, starting really at the grassroots. I remember mm-hmm. I did, an aud- like, an audition for it in the library, like, in a room in the library. Mm-hmm. I think I, I probably saw a poster for it or something, mm-hmm. probably also at the library. Like, it was really a, a grassroots initiative to to reach out to youth locally, um, which is something I've tried to, to, to do myself since, is, like, reach back out directly into the community and, and create those opportunities like from that point and also create those opportunities digitally right so that mm-hmm. that youth do have access to these these yeah. kinds of opportunities more broadly and and in in that case you know the show toured and and youth more broadly were able to see a little bit of what the theater of the oppressed is mm-hmm. there there are other forms of theater of the oppressed so like another form uh is legislative theater which is mm-hmm. using theater to inform legislation, to inform governments, mm. which is also something that Sheeter has done uh, in, in the, I believe, it was the Ontario legislator, legisl- <laughs> the Ontario government <laughs> around changing laws around midwifery. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, lots, lots of really interesting stuff around theater wow. of the oppressed that is really inspiring, and I think like I'm, I'm curious what music can can take from that right and what we can take from that across other art forms wow yeah i'm wondering i mean if you know there's there's people that weren't planning on being performers that jumped up on stage and that i guess that element that you're you know it's not about you and if you're improvising something clever or cool or virtuosic it's like you're part of something more important like a you know a a heavy societal issue and being being part of a solution and with a group of people if that um if that's what would help inspire someone to mm. jump up on stage who otherwise you know wouldn't maybe wouldn't have volunteered when i mean so mm. often when we're starting these improvised practices even theater like it's kind of like lighthearted in games and comedy and i do this mm. musically that it's like okay it's not it's not heavy or have these huge societal implications what you're talking mm. about like we're gonna start with something like light and fun in the game and then get into the heavier stuff but this is just hitting it hitting it head on um, yeah well i mean there's different approaches right i take mm-hmm. the game and the lighthearted approach a lot and even in that project right we were <laughs> like in the development of it and even yeah. in the performance of it there's lighthearted yeah. moments but i think sometimes i think there's something to be said for what you're describing in terms of raising the stakes creates a different kind of 
collective importance Mm -hmm. to what's happening, right? Or like, you know, getting to what really matters to people. On one hand, getting to play, we could talk about how mm. getting to play is so important. But on the other hand, when you're when you're in a group, uh, in a performance setting, right? Like creating the space for that, setting the stage for that, so there, so that there's a degree of reverence, almost, right, mm. of the of the importance, and that way people support each other, and 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 are more likely to feel invested. Wow. Yeah. So so you had mentioned yeah some of these other. Uh, experiences or workshops that you as you as a facilitator and i've got mm-hmm. we could spend so much time on each 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 one of these too because <laughs> i mean yeah so far you know i've heard about you doing workshops as you say across the lifespan from babies to seniors and you do online music classes for like, group classes for preschoolers and i'm just yeah fascinated here i mean more details about those or maybe just sort of what you're what maybe some overarching philosophies or approaches are for building those community or I mean, even just giving us an overview. Cause I know a lot of folks listening, anyone from, from my circle that I'm bringing in in the musical improvisation hmm. world, but hearing about some of these things that you're doing is just totally, totally different from anything we're, we're used to in the hmm. improvisation world or just, yeah. Anyway, it's kind of open-ended, but I want to yeah hear about some of those experiences. Yeah. So I suppose when I was, so I, I uh, took part in the Artist Educated Professional Training Program at the Royal Conservatory, which was artists of different disciplines coming together to learn how to be artist educators, basically, mm-hmm. to use, uh, to not only educate in their art form, right? So like mm-hmm. teaching music, teaching about music, right? Or teaching mm-hmm. music for the sake of music or dance for the sake of dance but to also think about teaching through the art form, right? So mm-hmm. so social change um, through the arts is one, one example, but we can also think about math through music or, you know, social studies through dance or science through, you know, we can, uh, science through visual arts or there, there can be different combinations of that. Um, and so within that experience, not only did I see uh, like, models for facilitating and for creativity in different art forms and how how that looks but also just the prioritizing of creative choice points in arts activities right where we've talked about in music for example like rehearsing is different Mm -hmm. than exploring creativity right and sometimes Efforts in the arts can become about, I'm sorry, by efforts, I mean like learning, ensemble work, like it can become about a thing we're working towards and preparing for that, right? And it becomes basically rehearsal leading to performance. Hmm. And sometimes in facilitation, we can accidentally fall into the same, into the same groove, so to speak. And so, like, to be clear, I don't facilitate with 100% improvisation not at Mm -hmm. all there are lots of reasons that i don't do that in different Mm -hmm. contexts right but once you prioritize involving people in making creative choices you start to find other ways to include Mm -hmm. it and sometimes it can be included in something like a sing-along format Mm -hmm. so especially being online some of the programs i do for babies with their parents 
have a have quite a sing-along aspect where we're learning songs together, we're jamming out those songs, you know, it has a bit of a campfire sing-along vibe, except online. But even within that, you can create creative choices for the participants. And what some of those might be creative choices in that moment, but some of those also are kind of opening up wonderings for later, opening up, you know, possibilities just different options, different ways of trying it. So instead of, you know, here's the song we're singing, here are the words, I'm gonna tell you what they are, we're gonna sing exactly those words and clap along with me, <laughs> clap with me, clap with me, like, you know? Yeah. And there's definitely a place for that in terms of just getting everyone going and getting mm -hmm. everyone comfortable with being in the song. However, there are options for that too, right? Like you can clap along with me you could sway with the beat, right? Mm. You could hum instead of singing, mm. right? You could also like do something that's not clapping along with the beat, but some other way of beat keeping, right? Someone could quietly hum a solo to themselves while yeah. everyone else is singing the song. Someone like there's there's suddenly all these other options that we don't even necessarily always have to say, right? People will naturally sing and dance along. But I think starting to to frame it in terms of options, so it's less like, okay, do this, do this, and more about creating lots of different options for people to access a moment <laughs> together, you know, mm -hmm. and participate in different ways in that, including listening, especially for children, right? That being part of it and listening and maybe like swaying or something is already participation. Like it's, mm -hmm. that, that can be enough. Um, so to create different options up to then, like the idea of actually just like going totally in a in an improvised direction, that's that's kind of some some of my overarching philosophy, right? Yeah. Is how to create more options and model creative choices for people in a way that starts small and easy, and then we can we can develop kind of structures that extend that more and more. Wow, and that. Yeah, and that makes that makes so much sense. But we expand it into some other areas where you know we're talking about the, the sing along, and that's you know children will no will have you know all these options, no problem singing or play or however they want to engage. But I mean, I'm just imagining taking that to like a symphony orchestra or something. Oh, instead of playing what's written down, you you could sway along or you could hum your part or you know yeah, you've got yeah, creative yeah. choice. Like so many people are conditioned to like, please don't give me choices. Like, what do I need to do? Mm -hmm. How can I be, you know, we've touched on this before. How can I be mistake free? What do I need to do to get an A? All right. And then let's go on. You know, it, it can be something like that. Totally intuitive for kids. And then based on whatever it is about our education or, or, or culture, mm -hmm. that that would, that would be such a, um, a different experience for many <laughs> groups yeah. of adults. Well, and that's the thing too, is is meeting people where they're at so you help them feel safe and you give yes. them very specific choices sometimes and open-ended choices at other times. Mm -hmm. Because of course I could give everyone extremely open-ended choices mm -hmm. and that might be challenging for some people, right? So sometimes it, it is about narrowing it so that people can step into that and believe in themselves and also so that they like they know what to expect. They're invited mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense to them, right? So like if mm -hmm. I invite you to come on over and jam, yeah. you might like, you might start just playing a part that fits in, mm -hmm. right? 
if I invite you to just come over, you're probably going to, you know, chat with me. You're not going to play saxophone back at me <laughs> because like that, you know, that's that's taking it too far. Right. Yeah. So like being very and I know that sounds silly and obvious, but when we're facilitating groups, people don't always know what to expect or like yeah. like what to do with themselves. So mm-hmm. the balance between choices, options, like, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, allowing for possibilities, allowing for free play. And then on the other hand, um, creating structures and making it feel very safe for people, especially mm-hmm. when people believe they aren't musicians or believe they can't sing or, or you know, have, have beliefs about, about themselves and their abilities. So when I talk about that, though, what does that bring up for you thinking about your own journey at both, mm. both in your own experience as an artist and people facilitating your creativity but also as you became a teaching artist and as you started to do more facilitation yourself yeah different people relate to that in such different ways i guess and that comes down to what we were talking about the what of improvisation like that attunement to the the moment that there's not necessarily going to be here's the method or here's the trick or here's what we do when we're facilitating it's like who's who are the people in the room now and what are their needs and their fears and what would make them feel comfortable right as we're designing these learning activities what's going to work for this this group would be silly for this group or what mm. really works for this group would be really abstract and confusing for this for this other group so finding mm-hmm. even within a similar set of values or practices being able to read the room is mm. i think such an important part important part of this this work well i guess yeah my journey is being a teaching teaching artist and really starting to focus on this realm of musical improvisation. I guess started, so I went, uh, when I finished my time at New England Conservatory in Boston, I moved back, moved back to Seattle area. And, you know, I didn't have huge aspirations other than like, hey, I want to, you know, freelance. I want to play gigs and work on projects and teach lessons and not have a day job. Like I did not want to put on a tie, you know, music or otherwise. I was really invested in music education, but not being a full-time public school band director or something like that. And I've got the most respect for people to do that, but that wasn't my, that wasn't my path. And just a freelancing, playing, playing gigs and paying the bills, you know, teaching some lessons and some schools would bring me in and say, Oh, you, you know, you're jazz musician, come and teach my jazz band, teach everyone how to solo. And we go in there and there's like 20 kids and we have to teach them how to like take turns one at a time as they're, you know, one terrified kid to the next. And it just didn't seem like the, it was, it's a very challenging setup to come teach everyone how to play an improvised solo. And even if we had the time to just pass the microphone around most, when we're doing that, a lot of people weren't engaged. And uh, I guess one of these light bulb moments for me, it was um, a... It was a summer, it was like a summer, summer music camp. And I had just finished, I was just fresh out of school and enthusiastic to teach. And they wanted me to teach a beginning jazz improvisation class. I'm like, oh, all right, we can get these kids going. Some of them can learn, we can learn some tunes and learn about some theory and chords and play a blues and do this and that. And I had this whole thing all planned out. And when we came in, the class, there was maybe 20 or about 20 kids, all different levels, like from... I don't know, ages, not all different levels, but for instrumental plays, you know, they start at maybe age nine or 10, 10 year olds up through some, some high schoolers. And there are some, some kids in there that could really play their instruments well. And this one, one kid, and I showed up, this kid with the trumpet, one of the younger kids, name, name was Kenny. And I was like, okay, yeah, Kenny, what, you know, what, what instrument do you play? He's like, I don't play an instrument. My parents just rented me this trumpet. And he held it up. (laughs) Like, 
Like, what am I, you know, so then I'm like crashing. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to teach them seventh chords, you know, candy camp. And this kid's over here just playing. It's like, what, what am I going to, what am I going to do? And just on the fly, I came up with, I, I drew from, this was something from my experience at, at music school when my director's Alan Chase would have us do some pretty listening intensive, I mean, it's a loaded word, but free improvisations, but m- more open-ended, some somewhat textural pieces. And he had certain prompts for us, like some limitations. One was called Fireflies, and we would just play pointillistic, like short textures of notes. There's one called Forest, where you would play a short phrase or motif, leave lots of space, and repeat it exactly the same, and listen to the interaction of all these sounds. And we would use them to build complete pieces or to take our original compositions and use them as transitional material. And I was like, okay, kids, we're playing Fireflies, so we're doing that. Okay, now Mm. we're going to play Vines. Now we're going to do Explosion and dance party we just made up all of these kind of sound texture things and they were just and they, they were loving it like just seeing them all lit up and um even kids like you know like kenny couldn't you know traditionally he just he just got his trumpet so he didn't could barely make the characteristic sound but he was just all on board oh he could make short sounds he could make long sounds he could make extended techniques and then some of the more advanced and then i stood before i knew anything about sound painting but we were doing some hand signals for these okay you're gonna play fireflies and now this kid who's maybe more experienced okay you can play a solo on top of this whole thing Mm. and it was three we met every day for three weeks and by the end the kids were suggesting you know these other sound textures and Mm. uh and at the end we had the concert so it was this summer summer music program and it was just the you know the the band and the orchestra and the jazz band and the choir where everyone sang, but this group wanted to perform and then beginning improv class. And then we went up there with a whiteboard. So we did some like graphic scores on the fly and doing all these games and stuff. And they were all just totally lit up about it. Mm. Um, and then I guess to, well, and, I, and that, that made a, it made an impression on me. And then some people would ask me to, oh, I said you to follow up question. I, yeah. Well, I'll, no, just, just to jump in that, yeah. that, that, uh, part of what you're describing, which I didn't mention, like I mentioned yeah. kind of like creating options, create mm-hmm. creative choices, kind of like these indiv- either we, which we can think of like, you know, like a buffet of ideas, yeah. so to speak, but, um, uh, which I borrowed from J.D. Derbyshire. Yeah. <laughs> um, or we can think of, you know, like like kind of that can be activities, right? So mm-hmm. like that could be an individual creative moment or it could be like the activity is kind of creating that. But then what you're describing is that it becomes this larger creative process mm-hmm. that we have individual choices. We have kind of like um, activities or ideas or like kind of like realms that containers that those exist in. But then it becomes this larger creative process that mm-hmm. is just what you described. Like it has, yeah. a, it has a different kind of shape and magic to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was that moment too, I was realizing that, well, I want to set this up in a different way that we're not just going to teach everyone to solo that sets off fight or flight. And when I build, so now when I do even traditional jazz combo workshops, we'll do this stuff and it gets people this environment of we're experimenting, we're being expressive and spontaneous. And after you've played Guess the Animal and done these chicken sounds in front of your friends, like trying some other game or something that might be, then we can pivot to something that's more, mm. if we're doing like jazz language or, you know, we do call and response. And then suddenly it can go into these other areas, but the environment is set up in a, in a different way. Um, but here's, I guess, to wrap this up with the, the chicken soup of the soul 
a music teacher so like i was like years later i was in in graduate school in seattle you know i took like 10 years off after my undergrad and i was a ta for the jazz and imp- i have a yeah master's degree in jazz studies and improvised music so uh as a ta i think one quarter i was like playing in the big band and i was there i was like hey steve and i, and I looked around and it was kenny like the kid from the class and he was playing lead trumpet in the jazz band like and i was like he learned how to play like <laughs> Okay. And yeah. uh, and he's like, "Oh, do you still do Explosion?" I'm like, "No, I don't do Explosion, but I remember <laughs> it like, but I use, you know, this other one you came up called River. We do that. Yeah, and we've still been in touch and he's a yeah, band director at a private school now wow. and, and doing the thing, so it was like, What okay. an amazing story." Yeah, and even if Kenny hadn't learned, how, you know, even if he never really learned how to play the trumpet, it was still fo- but yeah, he was there in that last concert when we're doing all the yeah. the silly games. He was there and he figured out enough of the horn to play whatever he had to do in the, in the concert band. Um, but that really, and then some of these band teachers would, you know, they heard, they'd heard, hear about these like, Oh, can you do those whatever weird yeah. improv things you do with my band or my orchestra or choir? And I would do those. Um, and like, Oh, these are kind of fun, but I guess pr- professionally too, I was, you know, going from the, you know, I was wanting to, I guess, kind of hitting a roadblock with a freelance lifestyle, just going gig to gig. And I'm like, okay, I need something more, more stable. And that's when I, you know, made the decision to go to grad school. I'm like, well, maybe I need a, you know, a steadier job, get a college position or something. And, you know, I was like settling down and, you know, think about starting a family and, you know, I just, the, the gig to gig thing, it's like looking, looking at that as not that I necessarily thought that'd be a perfect position, but more for like this, the security and, you know, just a, a regular gig. So yeah, I went to graduate school and, um, I was, a uh, even when I was still in school, I hadn't finished my degree, but I was a finalist for a jazz studies position in a town nearby, which is a beautiful area. It would be like close enough to the city that I could still come back for gigs. It would be like the perfect situation if I was going to be, you know, at an institution. It's a finalist and had, you know, very awkward. Uh, I'd never like it was a Skype. This was pre-pandemic, but Skype interview where they had to ask everyone the same questions exactly and no back and forth. And it was very awkward, but I was like a finalist and didn't get the position. And it was, you know, hit me pretty hard. I was like, oh, this this one would have been perfect, and any of these other positions that are open are in places I really wouldn't want to relocate to, or even temporarily, it just wouldn't work. Um, that's kind of when I was introduced to the world of micro entrepreneurship. I used to have marketing and kind of under, which I was never that interested in, like the business side of things or figuring out how to sell out or make money. I was just not, you know, I just wanted to play music and teach music. Um, but someone had, yeah, in- introduced me to yeah to some of this new i guess yes small small business principles and realizing that being it's an asset to do something that's something that's unique not that Mm. you're trying to get your resume to you know compete you put your resume in a pile of 200 other ones you know just to uh to stand out and offer something unique it can be the cornerstone of building of building Mm. a business and i was in this workbook it was from a it's like a business development workbook that had a bunch of like it's like a, ju- a journal. One, one of the questions was, what is a problem you solve in a unique way? Mm. And I was like, oh, I do those weird like improvisation game, like people like, and people like it. But I was like, well, that's there's no job for that. Like, I can't do that. And but then I was realized I was building this all these questions. I'm like, wait, maybe this is the thing. If I build a structure mm. around this more unique experience, it allows us to have our niche, you know, more deeply resonate with a small group of people and potentially i mean in the the business side you can charge a premium when it's the only option if people want this thing and it's you can't just find someone but if it's a anything you offer that's really unique 
you can't just find the Walmart equivalent. Like, what's the cheaper version of this? Mm. Like, it's the only the only kind of experience. So that's when I, mm-hmm. I really started working more on the workshop experience. So then that I would go, yeah, to some of these music programs. I could serve more people and work with an entire music program or entire ensembles and perform and like starting to do more guest artist things and working on doing more speaking and and things like that. Like trying to be trying to be a leader in some way in this this way of teaching improvisation in a way that was different than the certainly the status quo mm-hmm. in in jazz education and and started with this game symphony workshop which I've talked about before using theater games and some of these things that we're talking about and making that a central part of what I'm doing as you know part of my mission but also the, like strategically and business wise it actually makes sense to do something that seems not not standard Mm, yeah, yeah. And I think also as we see how well it works mm-hmm. and as we're impacted by seeing like by by all these examples, right, of of different types of people being positively mm-hmm. impacted in different places and different mm-hmm. contexts, it also becomes like, you know what matters, you mm-hmm. know, and that that you want to um, want to elevate that and, and kind of come into that yeah. and be able, as you said, to serve more people and to to uh to to impact people both more deeply but also in a in a broader way yeah. and kind of amplify that and yeah. amplify that out and as you were talking about uh using like you know uh animal games with professional musicians yeah. and things like that it uh part of for me what working across the lifespan so to speak mm-hmm. has been uh which I, I worked for an early childhood music education company teaching tons and tons of babies and toddlers and preschoolers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like I kind of came into it with that, but I also uh, was part of some research projects at it, that were affiliated with this lab that was one of the the titles they used was neuroeducation across the lifespan. So like education, uh-huh. using the brain across the lifespan. And I was involved with some projects both for young kids. Uh, and for seniors, um, and since then I've done lots more with mm-hmm. with with kind of all the age groups, right? The parents and little ones, and and seniors and adults, but also um, people with dementia uh, and j- lots of different types of people. And I've found that the same activities often work really well in really different situations. And mm-hmm. and once you're kind of thinking music and experience in this broader sense it's not like oh this is the stuff i do with babies i mean mm-hmm. obviously there's some developmental things that like there's certain things that work particularly well but oddly some of the stuff that works really well at the beginning of the lifespan i can keep mm-hmm. you know we can keep using mm-hmm. in other ways and that it's not you know like to me there isn't like children's songs and adult songs <laughs> mm-hmm. obviously there are some songs that are we use a lot in childhood and there's some songs that are maybe not appropriate for children but then in between we have all kinds of songs that are just songs in our culture that we can use and so it uh the more i did it the more i found all this transfer and and uh like just just interesting ways that it wasn't in silos it was it was kind of blended mm. together in these beautiful ways where you you see how you can use some of the same principles or sometimes the exact same activity in different contexts and people will get so much out of it and the idea of something being like too juvenile is something that i try not to assume that mm. something is too simple or too juvenile because even very simple activities can become really amazing gateways to deeper awareness or to to accessing other parts of ourselves um and it 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 all depends on how we do it (laughs) yeah oh absolutely 
preaching to the choir here because like, <laughs> so much and i use that a lot deliberately using novelty and things that are kind of silly just it's disarming in a way and is really that that gateway um to some deeper um some deeper concepts and i've found yeah some of these things that i was doing with you know kenny who didn't know how to play his trumpet it's just as useful when i'm working with like university music majors i'll do the same a lot of the same activities and as you know i have to change the the dynamics a bit, you know, with with some of the adults, we can like stop and reflect and talk more with the younger kids. We need to be playing as much as possible. Like I can't cut mm-hmm. them off without knowing what I'm going to say next. It's like way faster paced and mm-hmm. even a little bit more, a little bit goofier with the, with the groups of kids, mm-hmm. a little more therapy involved sometimes with the adults and, and, and working <laughs> yeah. through all that. Yeah. Like when I first sent you my, my ebook, when you asked, oh, what ages do you use this for? And I was like, oh, this is interesting because it's a lot of the same. Yeah. I mean, same concepts, but I mean, this is written for, you know, maybe, uh, who knows, high school or adult learners, but I just adapt the same. It's not a book I would give to a kid, but I use some of the same the same concepts for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, well, I wanted to ask you too on your um, journey of doing this professionally, because I, th- I think you had mentioned you had, you know, haven't had, you know, like me, maybe you have a similar unemployable streak or you have, you know, largely being independent, you know, working for some, some contracts, but how all this work you've done is, yeah, how, how that's grown for you professionally, you know, without having a full-time position for extended periods of time not the Um, j-o-b word yeah yeah, well i mean i have had jobs yeah (laughs) but um some of those jobs like uh, we've talked a lot about alignment right so from pretty early on i was trying to find things i could do that were in alignment Mm. with other things i wanted to do right so i was you know as a teenager i was like, you know, performing as a singer-songwriter, but I was mm-hmm. also putting on concerts, right? Because yeah. I wanted places to play. So that kind of entrepreneurial aspect or that some people would call do-it-yourself, but it's not just do-it-yourself, it's in collaboration, right? That mm-hmm. started really early. Uh, and then, I mean, I feel very lucky, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, because I feel that, I mean, lucky, but it's also having having a focus and and... I don't mean strategy as in like a specific action plan, mm-hmm. but a strategy as in like you identify values and and activities that that are again in alignment. Yeah. So um, I mentioned uh, that I that I took that program at the Royal Conservatory, and I've done I've done other work uh, and learning at the Royal Conservatory, mm-hmm. and through that I ended up working with Learning Through the Arts, which is a program that has artist educators doing uh, school visits, classroom visits, teacher professional development. So through that, I met a lot of different kinds of artists and educators, a lot of, like, I got to see a lot of artist educators work in really different ways. Uh, So that was enormously helpful to me because I had, when we talked about models, right, I had a lot of modeling and then making my album I saw other musicians on on uh, like who are professionals who are touring who in some cases were uh, either had played with like you know long ago had played with some really big names or were like mm. just coming off of tours yeah. with pretty big names in it like that's really inspiring so I knew it was mm. possible because I saw it around me and I I kind of saw these models of different ways to go about it right like the 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 touring musician or like mm-hmm. or gigging or yeah. or these different models and then i worked with rainbow songs doing early childhood music mm-hmm. uh so that was you know a music job so to speak yeah. i've taught piano and taught voice mm-hmm. and so 
it's it's that juggling of the of the gig economy so yeah, I just, i've done a absolutely. lot of that where i'm where i'm doing different kinds of things mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um and then over time i that leads to certain opportunities or that that leads to being able to build uh in in different directions and so Mm. sometimes it's been about leaping into opportunities and collaborations and and seeing what happens and learning from that and sometimes it's been about creating things slowly and strategically uh for for other reasons like i do Mm. group online piano lessons and that was a very specific choice Mm. based on my experiences and seeing how well it works for kids Mm. to learn in small groups together and to be inspired by each other and uh to integrate creativity in lessons which i was doing one-on-one with students but Mm. it's just all the better together so sometimes it's been about designing something and Mm. sometimes it's been about like learning things from opportunities that i didn't necessarily think I would be exploring. I've done music for churches, sacred mm. music, um, and musical direction for for musical theater and for mm. uh, um, and for churches where it's not nearly as much about improv and about the creativity mm. aspects and it's much more about the performance aspects. Uh, but that being said, we've talked before about how through that, that's actually led to learning more about improv unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, same the same page with being able to, you know, d- designing things and strategizing, but then when the right opportunity pops up, like, I don't know, suddenly starting a podcast you weren't expecting to, you know, <laughs> when those when those things pop up. Yeah. I, actually, but because I had a question about that Royal Conservatory program. So for that, so it's a multidisciplinary program. Did you have, were you, did you have to apply like in a slot, like I'm applying as a musician or as a poet, or was it more, I mean, was it even a music program or an arts program or how did that, how did yeah. that work? What kind of, yeah, what kind of. Yeah, program was that at the university. So I had to make an application mm-hmm. that showed that I had a professional arts practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so submitting my album, I don't know if I was even done my album when mm-hmm. I applied. I must have been. So mm-hmm. so 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 submitting that as part of like my portfolio for it and mm-hmm. other aspects of that that I'd applied for stuff as a musician right like i'd applied for mentorship programs as a young Mm -hmm. musician and um and had some really awesome experiences through like emerging artist mentorship programs but this was the first time that i applied to something as i now have a professional practice you know Mm -hmm. not i am an emerging musician or emerging artist as like here's my professional (laughs) practice which like we talked before, but when are you an athlete? It's like, when yeah. are you a professional practicing artist? Okay. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, there wasn't like a slot specifically for musicians, but. Uh, I see. So for a pro- it was a pro- yeah, professional development, but although you were pretty, pretty much just starting out at the same time. So. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? Like I did have a professional practice. I was yeah. performing. I did have a portfolio, but it didn't really feel like it mm. <laughs> at the time. It didn't, it didn't feel like I had a, a really solid history but in a sense I did I'd been performing for years right so uh that idea of like when are we ready when when's the time I'm not you know I don't even play an instrument (laughs) you know I just I just have this instrument yeah yeah when are you yeah when are you when are you ready yeah taking Um, ownership of that and kind of like responsibility for that, mm-hmm. right? So that that's like, here, I'm making this application and then I get in and I'm part of it. And it's like, wow, okay, now I'm in the situation where people and essentially an institution 
are like believing in me and kind of mm-hmm. counting on me to show up the way they're showing up for me. And it's like, I can't flinch away from this because mm-hmm. like I applied and I was very clear about who I am and what I was doing, yeah. you know, and it, it creates a different kind of, I think, responsibility to our own, to our own creativity, aside from that being like a personal and artistic practice, but like a perfect, mm. creating a professional thread that is important to us to, to, keep following through our careers wow yeah and back to something you said earlier like talking about these models looking at these musicians and people that were on tour or doing you know different ways of being a professional you just even a quick story when i was coming up you know i was really into music but i never really considered pursuing it professionally you know because just about every well-meaning adult in my life it's like well you know if you're a musician you'll die poor and lonely so you want to get a real job and play music on the weekends or something like that you know and they're looking at what's what's best for me and i was like okay well that's just kind of took that as a as a given you know until i saw like my my own saxophone teacher who was who was doing well freelancing and you know i took a lesson with a trumpet player maybe 10 years older than me still a good friend of mine to this day jim cisco and uh he's a great player and i saw like this guy's he's playing gigs he's teaches lessons He's got a decent place to live. He has a girlfriend. He plays golfs on the weekends. And he seems like he a pretty, like, happy guy. And he's not famous. You know, he's a professional musician. And, like, I was like, but same thing. I saw these people. I'm like, well, if they can do it, you know, it's the same thing as, like, seeing mm. Sam. Like, I saw a model of, like, well, these people are making freelancing happen. And it's in a, you know, this, a, 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 yeah, a certain city where this is possible. And it's just another one of those things. You see someone, mm-hmm. you see someone doing it. You see someone on the road or you see... Um, yeah yeah you see see the model and then you're like oh it's it's possible and it's just a shift from that's impossible to like oh it's an option if i want to go for it and once you make that make that make that shift yeah yeah it's interesting you say that so i was like deeply interested in science and environmental Mm. studies and i remember talking about considering going into the arts instead of sciences Mm. and a teacher who who had been a you know a science teacher of mine kind of being like yeah, right. Like that would be kind of like a waste of your potential was the tone and the sort of yeah. the, the implication of what he said. And then the summer between grade 11 and grade 12, I took part in a different theater production, which was a, a, a musical about the life of Tom Thompson. Uh, and it was there was like a development portion where where young people were doing theater and music stuff and learning and and kind of workshopping all kinds of stuff. And then there was the actual mounting of this professional production with mm. like professional cast and crew and then also these young people who'd participated in this development process and within the mounting of the produ- production there was lots of improv and lots of um like have interesting ways of 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 create like of developing that creative process mm. And so through that experience, I was like, well, this feels awesome and mm. studying does not feel this awesome and it's not that I'm like I knew, right, that like it was an option to kind of do the more academic side. And I mm-hmm. knew that the arts weren't going to be easy, <laughs> right? But I was like, wow, this, like talking about ensembles. And I ended up changing <laughs> the courses I'd selected for grade 12 mm. to be arts courses and uh, applying to university for theater, which I, did, I ended up not doing because I was Mm. making the album instead but Mm. I end up totally changing trajectory and being like okay I'm doubling down on arts and creativity Mm. because my lived experience of it Mm. is so powerful and my lived experience of science 
as much as I'm still deeply influenced by like by science and I've worked with cognitive neuroscientists in a context with music research, which is really cool. Like it's definitely what? woven. Okay, another episode. <laughs> yeah, it's Whoa. definitely woven into to what I've done. Uh, but my lived experience of science wasn't terrible. I love, yeah. like, I'm curious. I had all this passion for it, but it was a different kind of thing. And before that, I believed if I... So I like I I did music and I knew the like struggle of music and the struggle of music alone or the struggle mm-hmm. of music where you don't feel like you're getting anywhere and I knew kind of that like discouraging aspect or like the tough part of it mm-hmm. right um, and I thought that if I went to school for music or if I pursued music for pr- professionally or if I kind of elevated its importance too much in my life that it would ruin it. And I said that to people. I said, oh, if I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it for a career because that would just ruin it for me, <laughs> you know? But then as I had, you know, the, m- even more powerful ensemble experiences and even more powerful experiences myself, but especially with the collaboration to mm-hmm. balance out this kind of like solo creative journey that is a little more tumultuous. And I got that, I got a bit more of that balance. And also, as I worked more doing <laughs> different types of, of work, I realized, ah, actually, if what I do for work is something that I'm passionate about, I'm going to be doing it a lot. So that's probably a good thing. That's probably not going to ruin yeah. it. That's probably going to be enriching for my life as a whole. So let's yeah. pick, I'm going to spend a lot of time working. So let's really like, let's get into it, you know? Yeah. Not, not that it can't ruin it, but you know, it's uh <laughs> Uh, that's what, yeah, so but I mean, you had the ignition source. I mean, that's it. You, you felt you had that ignition source for the artistic side rather than the mm. the science side. That is, yeah. And I run into yeah, young young players who are like, oh, what, what do you think about for college? Like, oh, I'm going to go into engineering. Oh, okay, are you into you know? And then we talk more and more. It's like, well, and maybe you know, maybe minor in music. And as we talk, they're like, it turns out they're super passionate about music, but oh, but the engineering's the safe thing, safe thing yeah. to do. And and maybe that's a great idea. Who knows? But the others, st- yeah, still helping the other young people na- navigate that went. You know, not not pushing, not super pushy to say, hey, mm-hmm. this is what you need to, do. you know, one of my most talented students who could have, you know, gotten a, you know, a scholarship to go to music school ends up like loving atmospheric science. And he's a, you know, so he's, he found a, has own weather blog and yeah, he's got a good gig doing that. It's like, wow, this is, you know, yeah, he, he was like lit up for that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, interesting to. And no shade to science. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And actually, well, that that was one of the things I wanted to bring up is that mm-hmm. science, in terms of like uh, arts based research, research about the effectiveness of the arts, um, my business is called Best Practice Arts, partially because it's like, yeah, best practice. Uh. <laughs> and par- partially because it's like, ah, like being creative is the best practice. But it's also yeah. because I have. Like a uh, part of my background has been like looking at like what does research say and what does kind of theory mm-hmm. say and then how can we turn that into programs or curriculums or or um, workshops or like how can we interweave that in our practice so that we're using this knowledge to enrich what we do and I'm still passionate about that but yeah. part of what I've found over time is that like yes let's let's use that absolutely and that's helped inform what I do and I think that supports more creativity and more improvisation and i think also the extent to which the re- sorry the reason i want to use those best practices is so i can help people better and i can help people help themselves better and that like i can increase effectiveness increase impact however i think that the power of improv and of creativity and of music and arts in general is beyond what we've measured you know mm-hmm. and that we can't always uh it's so multifaceted that we aren't always going to have 
studies and best practices that take into account the numerous benefits, the extent to which there are benefits. Like I can't rely on scientific studies to be my only compass in this kind of work because the impact is so much mm -hmm. deeper and greater than that. And as I was talking about kind of the like spiraling models of, mm -hmm. of personal change and then also like interpersonal or like relational or collective experiences, but mm -hmm. then larger cu cultural or social change. And again, no shade to science. Absolutely, let's bring that in. But I want to work deeper and faster than than the science may have caught up. So I think it's a for me, it's been a balance of both. <laughs> wow. Maybe, maybe that's a perfect way to leave this conversation. Yeah, th that that's that's awesome. Yeah, and wow, it turns out I think we have more to talk about. <laughs> so it'll be, be another season. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, a a any. Anything else about the the who that we, I mean, pl plenty more to, to unpack and uncover, but anything else that you were dying to say for this episode and we didn't, yeah, we didn't get to? I am very glad to have learned more about who you are. Oh, like, likewise. And not, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, we've got one more in our pilot, our pilot season and... Yeah, looking forward to connecting connecting with you folks. So be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform of choice. And uh, you can connect with us at infiniteimprovisation.com and sign up for the newsletter and find our online community. So until next time. <laughs> <laughs>